Here we go. Let's begin our celebration of the festival of Sukkot. It's a feast. What's that mean? It means we get to eat. That's right. It is the most joyous of all the festivals. Whenever you read the scripture about exceedingly great joy, it's talking about the feast of Sukkot. When Messiah was born, the angels proclaimed what? Exceedingly great joy. He was born at the festival of Sukkot. If you want to celebrate his birth, this is the day. This is the day. How do you know it wasn't in December? Because the sheep were out in the field at night, being kept by the shepherds in the field at night. You can't do that in late December. They would all be popsicles. So let's begin with names for the Feast of Sukkot. Sukkot means the Feast of Tabernacles. A sukkah is a tabernacle, meaning a temporary dwelling. The Feast of Tabernacles looks back to the time that Israel dwelt in the wilderness, having just come out of Egypt. It's not that they dwelt in the wilderness by itself, but that God dwelt in their very midst. If you could see the camp of Israel from above, from the satellite that didn't exist back then, you would see in the center the tabernacle with the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud during the day and around it to the north three tribes of Israel, to the south three tribes, to the east three tribes, to the west three tribes. So where was that great mixed multitude? Grafted in. There was no camp of the Gentiles. They were part of whichever tribe they chose to be grafted into. God dwelt in our very midst with his very own presence. So not only does it look back to that day, but looks forward to the Messianic kingdom. Where will the Lord be? In our very midst, dwelling in the temple, the rebuilt temple. He will have as a throne the mercy seat. It's going to be a beautiful time, a time of great joy. Another term for the Feast of Sukkot is the Feast of the Nations. Because two reasons. One, at the Festival of Tabernacles, Israel was required to sacrifice 70 bulls. How many nations of the world were there? 70. One bull for every nation of the world. So the nations were remembered in the festival, whether they liked it or whether they didn't. But second, in Zechariah 14, 16, it tells us that all nations are going to come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You betcha. Another term for it is the Feast of Ingathering, called Chag Ha'asif, C-H-A-G space, H-A-A-S-I-F, because it is the feast when the harvest is completed. The harvest has been fully brought in. And the fourth term for it, or fifth, depending whether you listed Sukkot as separate or not, that's simply the Hebrew for tabernacles. But the last one is called the season of our joy. Because I will promise you this, if you are present in the Messianic kingdom, you will be rejoicing. You will be celebrating, you will be singing, you will be dancing. You will be thanking the Lord our God that you get to live in the kingdom of peace, love, and harmony that is without end. 
So let us begin the Bible study with Psalm 40, verse 7. You guys know it. What does it say? Lo, I come, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. This Bible, look at it. It's one book. It's not two books. One for them, one for us. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, it teaches one continuous, unbroken message that we are sinners and the wages of sin is death and our eternal destiny is the lake of fire. But God sent his only son to take our sins upon him, to bring to us salvation that we might live in God's presence from now unto eternity. What was David's prayer? That he would live in the heavenly tabernacles with the Lord forever and ever. But the heavenly tabernacle doesn't stay in heaven, does it? It returns to earth when? At the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 21, we call it the New Jerusalem. How big is the base of the New Jerusalem? It's 1,500 square miles. That means 1,500 miles in each direction is what we're trying to say. Picture a line from here stretching 1,500 miles west. That would cover most of the United States, wouldn't it? And now take the same line north, you're into Canada. That's the size of the city, the New Jerusalem. How big the county is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure there's going to be counties. 2,250,000 square miles, and it's just as tall as it is wide and long. So, is it a cube or a pyramid? We don't really know, but all we do know is it's got a lot of rooms. What did Messiah say in John 14? Turn to John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. Well, it's not really mansions. It's what? It's bridal chambers. Why does he need so many bridal chambers? Because <laughs> to fill up two million square miles, okay. But more than that, because the bride is so numerous. John 14, verses 1 and 2. You believe in God, believe also in me. So it says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. What's it mean to be troubled? To be worried, fearful. Don't worry, he says. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, as many bridal chambers as we read in Isaiah chapter 26. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And what does Messiah say next? No. Oh. <coughs> not again. Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Messiah is building those bridal chambers. The only way we get entrance to one is by salvation and by faith through the completed work of our Messiah Yeshua. 
1 Corinthians 3 puts it this way, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is our Messiah Yeshua. He laid down his life for you and for me. What characterizes most weddings? Sadness, sorrow, no, joy, happiness, excitement. That's the way it's going to be. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You know it well. But let's just review. Why do we study the feasts and festivals? This is why. But concerning the times and the seasons, that's the appointed times of the Lord, which teach about Messiah's first and second comings. The first coming has been completely fulfilled. That's what Acts chapter 2 meant when it said when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Those first four appointed times, they're completed. But these last three were still awaiting their fulfillment. It says, brethren, no need that I should write to you. Why? Because they celebrate them year in and year out. Who taught these Gentile believers to celebrate the feasts and festivals? Paul did. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why didn't I call them the feasts and festivals of Israel? Because they're the feasts and festivals of the Lord. He repeatedly says, they're my feasts. They're his appointments. He's going to keep them. So when Messiah was crucified, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. When he was buried, they were in Jerusalem to see it. When he rose again, they were in Jerusalem to see it. And when the Holy Spirit came, what does Acts chapter 2 say? There's Jews and proselytes from where? Everywhere. They've all come in to Jerusalem to see it. So when Messiah returns for the kingdom, where will Jewish people be? In Jerusalem to see it. Will it be just the Jewish people? Or will it be those Gentiles that have been grafted in? Just think of the mixed multitude. That great mixed multitude mentioned in Exodus chapter 12. And when you look down at the camp of Israel, they're all grafted in. You can't tell one tent from another. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23, where the feasts and festivals of the Lord are laid out in great detail. You could label Leviticus chapter 23 the table of contents, or the index, or the overview of the scriptures. Verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, that word Lord is a tetragrammaton. When you see the phrase, the Lord of hosts, what do you know? It's an end times prophecy of when Messiah returns leading the armies of heaven. That term, the Lord of hosts, is the tetragrammaton. Adonai Zavaot. Yeshua, our Messiah, is the tetragrammaton. He is the Lord from all eternity. It says he spoke to Moses. What's the difference between spoke and said? S yeah, said is a simple statement. Spoke means strong emotion. He's really pushing the message. And that word saying means it's a quote. These words came out of the lips of God. They are what the Bible defines as scripture. Speak to the children of Israel. That's a broader term than Israel. The children of Israel. You've got to think back to the fact that Israel was not the man's given name at birth. What was it? It was Jacob. When does his name get changed from Jacob to Israel? When he wrestled with the Lord and prevails. He's come face to face with the Lord and he's had to change a heart. Yes, Mike? When did he get changed from Yaakov to Jacob? 
<laughs> right around, it wasn't 1611, it was in the 1700s sometime. When the, yeah. J, when the J was invented. Exactly, because there was no J. Even in 1611, it's not Jacob. Okay, but we'll pretend. It's Yaakov. Um, but the children of Israel means all those who have the faith of Israel. So it includes the mixed multitude grafted in. And say to them, the feast, it's not feast, it's the appointed times, the Moedim, not the Chagim. The appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, rehearsals of things that have been set apart unto God. That's Messiah's first and second coming. These are my appointed times. Six days shall work be done. Remember to change shall to may. May work be done. But the seventh day, not a seventh day, but the seventh day, is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It's the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Here's the nickel question. It says the seventh day is a Sabbath. Why doesn't it say is the Sabbath? Because there are Sabbath years and there are seven high Sabbaths. That's exactly right. Oh, good, good, good. I'll you the nickel afterwards. Only I didn't bring one. I have to owe it to you. Okay. I'm good for it. Verse 4. These are the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, rehearsals. Holy rehearsals. Which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Why is it so important that they be proclaimed at their appointed times? Why can't we just pick a more, oh, convenient time? Because Messiah will fulfill them at the very date and time specified. Passover is at 3 p.m. on the 14th day of the first month. When did Messiah die? 3 p.m. Hmm. I heard somebody just this week say the fact that he fulfilled the first four feasts right to the day and hour doesn't mean he'll fulfill the last three to the same degree. Maybe they're just, oh, some random event in time, not, not tied to the day and time. To which I go, really? Is that what Joel 2 says? That the latter rain will be like the former rain? Okay, never mind that. Let us get on to this very specific holy day, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which begins in verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Why saying twice? Is that double speak? It means, here's what you tell them, don't change a word. The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. For how long? For seven days. On the first day, that's today, there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. That makes it a high Sabbath, a Shabbaton in Greek. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day, wait a minute. It's how long a festival? Seven days. But on the eighth day of the seven-day festival, that's kind of strange, isn't it? But not really. Let's read. On the eighth day, you shall have a holy convocation. Something specific happens on the eighth day. If the seven days picture Messiah 
being with us as our Lord and Savior from the beginning, from the time of creation. There are 6,000 years from creation till the day of the Lord. There's the seven days. A day is the Lord's a thousand years. Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3, 8. So what is the eighth day? The new beginnings, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. Will Messiah cease? No. He will continue to be our Lord and Savior throughout eternity future. Messiah was born on the first day of tabernacles. What happens to the baby boy in the eighth day? That's the circumcision. At the circumcision, the baby gets named and the gifts are presented. Remember the Magi bringing the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold represents deity. Frankincense and myrrh are burial spices. What odd gifts to bring, huh? Except they were very prophetic. It says, on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a sacred assembly. That means a concluding assembly. When the eighth day is completed, then all the fall festivals are completed. When it's finally fulfilled. And you shall do no customary work on it. These are the appointed times of the Lord. But you shall proclaim to me holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. A burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, that's today, when you have gathered, past tense, what's another term for Sukkot? We said the feast of ingathering. When the ingathering is completed, it's over. The battle of Armageddon will have ended. The tribulation period is over. And we are in the millennial kingdom. If you look at the seven years of the tribulation period in relation to the seven days with an eighth day, then once the seven years of the tribulation period are over, then comes the Messianic kingdom. It says also on verse 13, also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, the fruit of the land, the harvest, what did Messiah liken the harvest to? Bringing in of souls into the kingdom. You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. So the eighth day of a seven-day festival has a Sabbath rest attached to it. Daniel's going to tell you all about that, isn't he? I'm going to talk about the birth. Cool. So then I can talk about other things that happen on the eighth day? Okay, cool. I never like to take his thunder. I enjoy his thunder. Verse 40, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You see that word rejoice? Here's where we get the season of our joy. The emphasis is entirely on rejoicing. Verse 41, you shall keep as a feast of the Lord for seven days in a year. It shall be a statute, what's that next word? Forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, but then it specifies. 
all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. So if you're not a native Israelite, do you have to dwell in booths? No. Can you dwell in booths? Yes. Is it a lot of fun? Yes. Okay. That. Oh, what's the word that mean in verse 43? Here's the reason why. Your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. How many times in Leviticus chapter 23 does God say this is a statute forever? Four times. Four times. Yes, ma'am. When God was taking us through the wilderness, it wasn't just Israelites. It wasn't just Israelites. You are correct. So when they say the native Israelites, what is that? The mixed multitude gets grafted in. It applies to them as well. Yipper. Mm -hmm. You didn't have two sides of the camp: a ham side and a lamb side. Just one camp. What's that, Doc? The word "native" means they were born. Yeah. Born in the land. Sorry. But in the wilderness, who was born in the land? Nobody. The second the All kinds of people were born the in the 40 years. They came out of Egypt and then had lots of children. Right, but they weren't born in the, they were born in the wilderness. Correct. They were native Israelites. Correct. Yeah. So it's talking about when you come into the land, where will they be born? In the land. Now, Paul. Paul was not born in the land. Did Paul have to live in a booth? He did not have to. He was not a native Israelite. He got to. He got to. So the Israelite is referring to the land of the people? Israelite, when you say born in the, what's it say? Native Israelites. Native refers to the land. Yeah, think Sabra. Alrighty. Alright, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 16 because it helps answer this question. Deuteronomy 16. Verses 13 to 17. Deuteronomy 16 verses 13 to 17. I'm still waiting for people to get there. So, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Verse 13 says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered, again, past tense, from your threshing floor and from your winepress. What is the most joyous time of the um, farming year, the agricultural year? When the harvest has come in. Oh, yeah. That's when you give lots of praise to the Lord. And that's where Israel, the northern kingdom, fell down. They brought in these massive harvests every year. And they gave praise and glory to Baal and Ishtar. And God would stand back and go, what did they do? I did this. Okay. 
and you shall rejoice. Again, the emphasis on rejoicing in your feast. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite and the stranger. Oh, who's the stranger? That's the non-Jew that's grafted in. That's us. Whether we're in the first part, you, or that part, stranger, it's us. And the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. When it says, don't come empty-handed, it says, remember to bring food for the poor. The fatherless and the widow, so that everybody can rejoice. Because I will promise you this, if you are in the kingdom, you are going to rejoice. First thing I'm going to do is get me a lion or a tiger as a pet. <laughs> What's that, Miss Linda? The descriptions of Sukkot were to be followed in the land. They couldn't actually be followed as they traveled around in the desert. Right, right they couldn't. As they were dwelling in the desert, they were dwelling in the desert. So it remembers when they did dwell. So, yes, yeah, when they come into the land that they begin to celebrate it. Okay. Yeah. Verse 15, seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. What's that? That's Jerusalem. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. Ah, what's that? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. In the beginning, they were dwelling in booze. Yeah, they didn't do it once a year. They did it all year long. But they didn't have the memorial every year? They did not have the memorial every year when they were in the wilderness because you can't remember something that's ongoing. You remember something that happened in the past. And its purpose is not to forget. When God brought us out of Egypt, our backs were to the Red Sea and we were dead. But God intervened. He put a pillar of fire that the fire only shone on us and darkness to the army of Egypt. Until God split the Red Sea, we went through on dry ground. Then God removed the pillar and said, Pharaoh, do what you want. Pharaoh charged headlong into the Red Sea and found what? Chariots don't float. And the Egyptian army was destroyed. Then the people said, we're hungry. And God fed us for 40 years with manna from heaven. That manna continued until they came into the promised land, having crossed the Jordan River and celebrated the feast of Passover. At Passover, the manna from heaven ceased. Because what do you do at the feast of Passover? You have first fruits, you harvest the grain from the land, and now you have plenty to eat. Uh, now we have the bread of life. What's that? You harvest it. You don't eat it until it's been presented. You don't eat from, you eat from last year's food until, until you have the... Uh, right, at feast fruit. Right. Feast of first fruits, which is what I said. At well, Passover. You're, you're including the whole Passover to here, but you don't eat it that year. Until right, you don't eat it until first fruits, until it's been dedicated to God. And that's where the manna stops because it's no longer necessary. God has provided. When they came into the land, the fields were ready for harvest because they had been planted by the previous occupants. And God said, I've got houses that you didn't build, you move into, crops that you'll harvest you didn't plant, 
vines that you'll harvest that you didn't tend. So God provided. But through all the 40 years in the wilderness, another word for wilderness is desert. What was there to eat in the desert if God didn't provide the food? Nothing. So did God let us starve? Never. Another thing you really need in the wilderness is water. Where did the water come from? From the rock. They didn't have bottles with them, no. But God provided the water. And it says in the scripture that the rock followed them wherever they went. To continue to provide the water. That's what the scripture says, yeah. So when we celebrate tabernacles, it's to look back and say, God never let us down. He protected us from Egypt. He protected us from all our adversaries. He overthrew Sihon and Og, the giants. He fed us. He watered us. He provided for all our needs. The scripture says even their shoes didn't wear out, having walked for 40 years in them. Yes? This is a real question. Did it, does it say that the rock followed them? I know the rock was with them the whole time. It says literally the rock followed them. Okay, because it seems like you know, we follow the Lord, right? The same way with the pillar or with the sheep. And the, the rock leads and we follow. So, but that word is actually, the rock followed us? Yeah, that's what it actually says. Yeah. Now, there was a time when Moses struck a second rock. He was told not to do that, to speak to the rock. Where was that rock? That was not at Mount Sinai. That's at Ein Musa, just outside Petra. You can, if you go to Petra, you can stop there and drink from the water that flows from the rock. It literally comes up from the broken rock still. And that is the water source for Petra. When the children of Israel flee there in the tribulation period, that's the water they will drink. God still provides. When Miriam died, the rock actually stopped. I don't know exactly when it stopped, but there was a need for speaking to the rock again. If you're at Ein Musa, looking down at Petra, if you look a little bit to your right, there's a high mountain peak. That's where Aaron is buried. So Aaron is buried where he can oversee Petra and watch out for the children of Israel in a symbolic way. Of course, he's his that is everybody else at the moment, but symbolically, that's what it indicates. Okay, verse 16. Oh, I didn't finish 15. For those of you who have studied biblical Hebrew, how do you say you shall surely rejoice? Rejoicing you shall rejoice. It's two uses of the same verb put together to say it's not just a regular rejoicing. It is rejoicing beyond measure. The season of our joy. Verse 16. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the feast of unleavened bread. That includes Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. At the feast of weeks. That's Shavuot. Or if you prefer Pentecost. I don't. At the feast of tabernacles. That includes everything from the feast of trumpets and the day of atonement to tabernacles. To God, these last three appointed times make up one feast time, one festival. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed, which means when you bring your food up to Jerusalem, you must bring extra to share with the poor. 
so that everyone can rejoice, from the richest to the poorest, from the youngest to the oldest. Verse 17 says, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So if God gave you little, you can bring little. If God gave you much, you bring much. Is this talking about gold to put in my pocket? The answer is no. It's food to share that everyone may celebrate. Let's go to Numbers chapter 29. Let me show you the 70 bulls. Numbers 29. Why does God not just reach out and destroy all the pagan nations of the world? Because there is a bull sacrificed for each and every one of those nations at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in Genesis chapter 10 that you learn who the 70 nations are, and we all descend from those 70. Numbers 29, starting in verse 12. I need my math majors out there, or at least my elementary school students. Verse 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, what day is that? That's today. You shall have a holy convocation. We rehearse. Rehearse what? The coming of the messianic kingdom. God dwelling amongst men. Oh, if only there was a name for that in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 9. Emmanuel means God who is with us. God dwelling amongst men. You shall do no customary work. That's why we're here today and not at work. Oh, some of us are retired, but the rest of you just, well, never mind. You shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire is a sweet aroma to the Lord. Here's what you have to give. Not each person. This is what Israel as a whole does. Thirteen young bulls. So make a note of thirteen. Two rams and fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. That's Tamim, isn't it? Without spot or blemish. That's what God wants us to be. Is as perfect as those lambs are. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering. Besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. That's day one. Verse 17, on the second day, present twelve young bulls. What's thirteen plus twelve? Twenty-five, good. Two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year, without blemish and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls for the rams for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance also one kid of the goats as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and the drink offerings that was day two day three on the third day present 11 bulls was 25 plus 11 36 Two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish. And their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs, by their number according to the ordinance. Also one goat is a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, his grain offering and his drink offering. On the fourth day, present ten bulls. What's thirty-six plus ten? Forty-six. Two rams and fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. 
Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, his grain offering, and his drink offering. On the fifth day, present nine. What's 46 plus nine? 55. Bulls, two rams, and 14 lambs in their first year without blemish. And their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, by, the or by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one goat is a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the sixth day, present eight bulls. So what's 55 plus 8? 63. Two rams and 14 lambs in their first year without blemish. I see some people have gone, I'm glad he's not calling on me. Okay. <laughs> and the drink offering, and the drink offerings, the grain offering, and the drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, whoops, I got some red out here. What's this? Let's see. Yeah, Paul was not born in Israel. Paul was born in Tarsus. Okay, where are we now? Let's go to verse 32. On the seventh day, that seventh day's got a special name. Do you know what it is? Hoshana Rabbah, which means the great salvation. Hoshana Rabbah. It comes up in the book of John. On the seventh day, present seven bulls. What's 63 plus seven? 70. There's the 70 bulls for the 70 nations. For grins, go to Psalm 117. Psalm 117 was sung by the Levitical choirs at every one of these appointed times, including the Feast of Tabernacles. Psalm 117. So this is sung as they're sacrificing the 70 bulls. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. So the Gentile nations participated in the sacrifices, whether they knew it or not, whether they wanted to or not. All right, historically, let's go back to Exodus chapter 40, to the time of the wilderness. Okay. Her question was, so this Feast of Tabernacles is going to be celebrated in the kingdom where all the nations are going to come up and celebrate it, right? Let's answer her question by putting a finger in Exodus 40. It doesn't have to be yours. Your neighbors will do. We go to Zechariah 14, 16. When we come to Zechariah 14, verse 16, the tribulation period is over. If you remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and how they opened the ark on the, on the island and then all the bodies were dissolved, that's from Zechariah 14, verse 12. So that's at the end of the tribulation period at the Battle of Armageddon. So when we come to verse 16, Armageddon's over. Messiah has established the kingdom. 
It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations. What's that word nations? Gentiles. Which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. What if they say, I'm not going? That's verse 17. It shall be whichever the phantoms of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. In an agricultural society, if there's no rain, there's no food or water. So, therefore, they shall come. That's right. So, let's go back to Exodus chapter 40. Verses 16 through 38. Exodus chapter 40, verses 16 through 38. We might even say verse 16 to the end. Thus Moses did, meaning everything that God commanded Moses in the wilderness, he did as far as getting the camp together ready to move. According to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. It came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, if it's the first month, first day of the month, what day is it? Hmm. That the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. So it's the first day of Tishri, right? No. It's the first day of Aviv or Nisan in the spring. It is the month in which we find Passover. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering on the, of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony. What's the testimony? That's the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. And put it into the ark. Inserted the poles through the rings of the ark. Why did he put poles through rings on the ark? Because the priests will carry it by the poles. What happens if they touch it like Uzzah did? They die. And put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Why wasn't the mercy seat already on the top of the ark? Because Moses had to put the testimony in it. Well, Moses could touch the ark and it was okay. Until a certain point. That's right. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it. So that's the table of showbread, the Lechem Hapanim. As the Lord had commanded Moses, he put the lampstand, that's the menorah, in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He set the laver, that's the wash bin, for the priest's hands and feet, between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and put their water for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they come near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's from that point forward, Noah's going to touch the ark. And before that, it's like Moses did all the work himself. As far as putting things in the tabernacle, he did, yep. All himself. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So why couldn't Moses enter? It was too bright. He didn't have sunglasses dark enough to go in there. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So that's what we're remembering at the Feast of Tabernacles. God dwelt personally and, and right there in our midst, visibly for everybody to see. You can't see God's face, of course, but that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud would have been real hard to miss. It really would have been. Okay. Do I want to do those verses? Sure I do. Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse 24. We'll start in 23 for context because it tells us Three times in the year all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel. So that's it. Passover unleavened bread and first fruits is one. Feast of weeks or Pentecost is second. And then Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles is the third. When all your men appear before the Lord, those three times a year, it says, verse 24. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. So if Israel had continued to celebrate the appointed times of the Lord as God commanded, they would never have been invaded. There never would have been another nation that wanted to invade. So how well did they do at keeping the appointed times? Not so good. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. It was a test of faith for the people. Because if you leave your land, if you're going from Nazareth to Jerusalem, that's what a two to three day walk. And then you're up there maybe for three weeks before you go back. So it's a guarantee that God no one's going to mess with your stuff. 
It's a guarantee from God. No one's going to mess with your stuff. Your flocks are still going to be there. Your house is still going to be there. Nobody's going to have come and messed with your stuff. So it's God saying, do you trust me? So it's God saying, do you trust me? What does Hebrews say? The people failed because of a lack of faith. Second Chronicles chapter 5 probably. Chronicles chapter 5. We'll start in verse 2. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 7. No, I want to be in Second Chronicles 5 3. We will go to Second Chronicles chapter 7 next. She has my notes, but before I put on all these little arrows and things pointing around. Okay. <laughs> It is 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 3, but we'll start in verse 2 for context. Now Solomon, who was he? He was the king, the son of David. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was in the seventh month. So at the time Solomon builds the temple, all Israel rejoices in the Feast of Tabernacles. Starting with the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement and concluding with the seven days plus an eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So there was a time that Israel was faithful. It just didn't continue too long. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Verses 8 to 10. I've got to read you the portions when Israel's being faithful, don't I? Verse 8. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days. And all Israel with him, a very great assembly from the entrance of Amat to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly. For they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. And then in chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. 2 Chronicles 8, verses 12 to 13. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which means what? Were they just keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? No, they were keeping all seven of the appointed times that are encapsulated in these three feasts. How about after the Babylonian captivity, when the people returned to Israel? Let's go to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. 
We went into captivity because we failed to keep the Sabbath years. We didn't have faith enough in God that he would provide for us. But we've decided we're not going to make that mistake again. So Ezra 3, starting in verse 1. And when the seventh month had come, that's Tishri, here we are. And the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So they all go up to Jerusalem and with one heart, one accord. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, Jeshua is the high priest, and Zerubbabel, he's the governor, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, Zerubbabel is the descendant of David. So he's over the not throne, he's not king, but he's governor over the people. I rose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required. So how many bulls? Seventy. By ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offer the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Is that important? Did they wait until the temple building was built? No. They set up the altar and they began sacrifices. So what will Israel do in the tribulation period when the false Messiah makes a covenant of peace? They will set up the altar and they will begin the sacrifices. When do they plan to begin the sacrifices? This coming Passover. Will they be successful or not? Ask me at Passover. Then we go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Just a little later than Ezra's writings, but it's still the return from Babylon. Nehemiah chapter 8. Where do I want to start? Let's start at the last sentence of chapter 7, verse 73. So a sentence before verse 8. When the seventh month came, that's Tishri, the children of Israel were in their cities. And all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. 
When does Deuteronomy say you're supposed to read the Torah to all Israel, all the Gentiles grafted in, even the cows are supposed to hear it? At the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. So why did they begin on Tishri 1? Yeah, the Feast of Tabernacles, as the Lord describes it, starts at the Feast of Trumpets. It goes all the way through. How long would it take you to read the Torah to the people? <laughs> a long time. So he's going to read it over several days. So let's go up to verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the Torah. And they found written in the Torah, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths. During the feast of the seventh month. See, they didn't know. So as Doc says, they needed a little time to learn what they're supposed to do before they hit the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 18. No, verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day, the children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. I mean, he had not done so with such joy. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and he kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. The attitude of the children of Israel when they returned from the Babylonian captivity was, we went into captivity because we sinned. We're not going to do that anymore. What had God commanded in Deuteronomy 6? The parents should want Teach the children. Notice as you read through Kings and Chronicles, the people will be righteous for a generation and turn away for a generation because the fathers were not teaching the children. So that is when Israel began what's called the synagogue system where every Shabbat you gather together and you study from the Torah, from the scriptures. Therefore, if your father did not teach you, here's the place to learn. Okay, let's carry on with the book of Jonah. Yeah. I'll never get over this shame. Book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. It's a little book, isn't it? Turn the pages slowly. There it is. What does the word Jonah mean? In Hebrew, Jonah means dove. What's the Hebrew word dove mean? Bear. Yeah. So in the book of Jonah, we'll start in chapter 3. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, that is, after he got fed to the fishes. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Last time God told him, he took a boat toward Tarshish. He's learned his lesson. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. 
a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What day does he enter? The first day of Elul, that 40-day period of repentance that ends on Yom Kippur. So let's keep reading. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, which is the fast day, Yom Kippur, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king did this along with the people to show true repentance. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. What do you call that? A fast. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster he said would bring upon them. And he did not do it as he did not do it then. How long did their repentance last? Not very long. About a generation and they turn back to their evil ways and then God destroys them. Verse 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry. Why does Jonah get angry? He wants God to destroy Nineveh, not forgive them. Seriously. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Meaning, that's why I was going to Tarshish. I wanted him to die. I didn't want him to be forgiven. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And just put in the margin, wine, wine. The Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city. How many days journey is it across the city? Three days. Three days. Yom Kippur is the 10th day. Add three days, the 13th. The 15th begins what? Feast of Tabernacles. There he made himself a shelter, a booth, a sukkah. Why is he building a sukkah? Because it's Sukkot. And he sat under it in the shade. So they might see what would become of this city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah. That it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. What misery? It's hot. It's the desert. Ooh, it's hot. So Jonah was very grateful with the plant. Or literally, Jonah rejoiced with great joy. As if we didn't realize it was tabernacles. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind. We call that a shirocco. And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, 
is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He said, it's right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their left hand and their right and much livestock? What was that? They're as dumb as the cows. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. Now let's look at the historical aspects of this festival for Messiah. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Amos says, Surely the Lord our God does nothing unless he first reveals it through his servants, the prophets. So if you go back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God tells us when Messiah would be born. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virtuous young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God who is with us. Which of the feast or appointed times of the Lord teaches about God dwelling amongst us? Tabernacles. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. In the scripture, Jews don't celebrate birthdays. So that's why you have to kind of hunt if you want to see the day Messiah was born. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Is this a lot of what you're going to cover? Yeah. So let's just say Daniel's going to cover Luke chapter 1. Okay. Let's go on to John chapter 1. Trust me, there's plenty enough else to cover. We know John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the word. How do you say in the beginning in Hebrew? Bereshit is the very first word of Genesis 1.1. So that's to put us in mind, God's talking about really in the very beginning. Was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. Okay, I'm going to now leave the section on the birth of Messiah. I'm going to go to the prophetic applications. What's to come in the future? Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 28. 
Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. For many, many years, Jewish theologians have said, look, the New Testament's not true. There were none of Yeshua's disciples that are still alive today. They're all dead. They didn't live till he brought in his kingdom. This doesn't say till he brings in his kingdom. It says till they see it. They're going to see it in a vision in the very next chapter as we keep reading. Now after six days. Um, what comes after six days? The seventh day. The six days represent the Garden of Eden until the end of the church age. The seventh day is the millennial kingdom. That day of the Lord that begins with the rapture and the resurrection. The seven year tribulation period. Then balance of 993 years on earth. Then the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a coincidence that it says now after six days. Yeshua took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. That is, he bore the glory of God, just like in Ezekiel 43. His face shone like the sun, meaning the sun creates the light. It doesn't reflect it. Messiah was the source of the light. And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. All right, now let's have a debate. Who are the two witnesses? Now, and then let's read again. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophets. Who is it that testifies the Messiah? The law and the prophets. Then Peter answered and said to Yeshua, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. When he sees in a vision Messiah coming in his kingdom, he knows that's the feast of tabernacles. So he offers to build three tabernacles. I'll, I'll try and do better. Yeah, Mike's an electrical engineer. If he says, I'm getting feedback, I'm getting feedback. I tell you what, I can move the microphone a little closer here. Maybe that'll help. If I get it too far out that way, then you get feedback from the speaker. Yeah. Okay. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, which means shut up and listen. A bright cloud overshot. Literally, that's what it is. It means this is so important. Don't bear to miss it. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Which is from Deuteronomy 18. What did God say he would do for those who would not hear Messiah's words? He would hold them accountable. So he's telling them right here, hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Yeshua came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Yeshua only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Yeshua commanded them saying, Tell the what? Tell the vision to no one 
until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So in chapter 16, when he said, until they see, he meant when they see the vision. And right there they saw it. What they saw, oh, let's read a little more. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do they reference the scribes? The scribes are the ones that are most learned in the scriptures. Do the disciples each have a pocket Bible they're carrying around? No. But they've heard the scribes in the synagogues read from Malachi and from Isaiah that the forerunner must come first. So they say, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Yeshua answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist, which was in the role of Elijah. The second coming is in Revelation 19.11. The second coming in Revelation 19.11 happens at the Day of Atonement. But let's just take a brief look. Revelation 19.11 He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He, shall, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And then the rest of chapter 19 describes the battle of Armageddon. When we come to chapter 20, Armageddon's over. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Who's the dragon? Satan. Satan. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. There we go. Amen. And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. This is the beginning of the messianic kingdom. Verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Yeshua and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Messiah for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. That gets established on tabernacles. So what happens between the Day of Atonement and Tabernacles. What goes on in those five days? Matthew 25, the sheep and goat judgments. Who will enter into the kingdom alive? Who will not? Isaiah chapter 2 describes the Messianic kingdom. Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2. 
And it shall come to pass in the end of days. If yours says latter days, just fix it. That the mountain of the Lord's house, what's a mountain in prophecy? A kingdom. Shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Mike, you're an expert in these things. Can you fix that? Do you know how to do that? Yeah, that's what I did. I moved it closer to me. Okay. I'll try and make sure I don't get it too far out. Verse 3. Wait a minute. Verse 2 ends with, And all nations shall flow to it. All nations are going to flow up to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Why? They want rain, don't they? That's right. Many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's the temple. He, Messiah Yeshua, will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is where I don't understand the amillennialists that say that we're living in this kingdom. There is no war, really? There's a Russian nuclear submarine that's missing right now. That should be of great concern to us all. Micah 4 says the same thing if you've never seen it. Turn back to Micah 4. If God says something once, it's important. If he says it twice, mm -mm -mm. Micah 4 verses 1 to 3. Reads almost exactly the same. Micah chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the end of days, if yours says latter days, just fix it. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion, the Torah shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In the book of John, There was a man who came to believe that Yeshua was the Messiah when Messiah said, I saw you sitting under your vine and fig tree. Because look at verse 4, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. That was an idiom for, you're going to be in the Messianic kingdom. And who could know who would be in the Messianic kingdom except a king? Yeah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. This describes, again, the kingdom. Another aspect of it. Starting in verse 2. In that day. In what day? 
in the day of the Lord. That's that thousand year period that starts with the rapture and resurrection and ends with the new heavens and new earth. In that day, the branch of the Lord, who's the branch? That's Messiah Yeshua, shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. Have escaped what? The tribulation period. Come alive into the kingdom. It shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion, that is the Jews who are saved, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, they're all believers. They're all saved by faith. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. What's that mean? A chuppah. A marriage canopy. All those who have come to faith in Messiah there are part of the bride of Messiah. And there will be a what? A tabernacle, a sukkah, for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. So again, it relates the establishment of the kingdom to the tabernacles. Go to Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 2. In verse 1 it refers to where the land of Zebulun and Naphtali come together. That's at the village called Kafarnachum in Hebrew or in English, Capernaum, where Messiah centered his ministry. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Who was the light of the world? Messiah Yeshua. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. What festival are we talking about here? tabernacles as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for you have broken the yoke etc verse 6 explain this to me so here's the explanation for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder when does messiah bear the government when is he king over all the earth at the second coming starting with the feast of tabernacles the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. El Gabor is Mighty God. Father of Eternity and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What peace? And they learn war no more. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. What's our time? We're doing good. Okay. Messiah returns in Ezekiel 43. It is the fulfillment of what 
Peter, James, and John had the honor of seeing in Matthew chapter 17. The Shekinah glory of God, that dwelling presence, departed before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple. Could Nebuchadnezzar have destroyed the temple with God residing there? No. So God had to depart. God returns in the person of our Messiah, Yeshua, in chapter 43. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. That's the eastern gate of the Temple Mount, also called the Golden Gate. It's the one that faces which mountain? Mount of Olives. Where does Messiah set his feet down? On the Mount of Olives, and then goes into the temple. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. That's Messiah. That's why his face shone like the sun. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And then in verse 7, this Holy Spirit takes Ezekiel into the temple, and there's Messiah on the throne. Verse 7, he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne. So this is where he will rule and reign from through the messianic kingdom on earth. And a place of the soles of my feet, which makes a claim of ownership and possession. Satan owns it no more. For I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. What does forever mean? Forever. No more shall the house of Israel defile my holy name. They nor their kings by their harlotry or with the carcasses of their kings on their high places. And we read in Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 that they're going to be teaching the law, the Torah. The Torah. If we go to chapter 44 of Ezekiel, it lets us know the Torah has not changed. Ezekiel 44, Messiah is sitting on the throne in the temple. And in verse 23, here's what's being taught from the temple. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings, which includes tabernacles, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. So the law has not changed. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11, which describes some more about the Messianic kingdom. Wait. Yes, ma'am? Um, how do people who do not follow the Torah, how do they explain this? How do people who do not follow the Torah explain this? They say, you didn't take those words literally, did you? <laughs> yeah, they don't mean what you think they mean. That's how they do it. And you say, what do they mean? They say... They don't make any sense, so we just ignore them. That's how. That's how. Isaiah 11. Let me show you the beauty of the kingdom. Not only is there no more war. In Isaiah 11, verse 3, referring to Messiah himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords, we read. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. What's fear of the Lord mean? To keep his commandments. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. 
nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's Revelation 19, isn't it? And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Can you imagine a king that is righteous and faithful? Oh. Not that we don't have a perfect government now, but okay. Verse 6. Yeah. Verse 6. The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. What would happen today if you put a wolf and a lamb in a pen? One's coming out, right? But the wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What is a mountain in prophecy? Kingdom. Do you see that the nature of the animals has changed? When Messiah comes and restores the earth, men's lives are again as long as trees. The animals' natures have changed, and they're not going to hurt people anymore. Which, if you look at the fourth seal in Revelation chapter 6, Animals' natures change there too, but they lose their fear of mankind. And they become very aggressive and very dangerous. But then when we come to the kingdom, their nature goes back to what it was in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, did Adam and Eve have to fear a lion coming up behind them? No. Nor would they now. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 19. Verses 18 and following. It's not just animals whose natures change, but every person who goes alive into the millennial kingdom is a believer in the Lord, saved by faith. And in verse 18 it says, In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. What's the language of Canaan? Hebrew, and swear by the Lord of hosts. That means they become believers. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Do you understand what that means, a pillar to the Lord at its border? Think of the movie The Ten Commandments. As we are leaving Egypt, What's the last thing we see before we head out into the desert are the pillars. And those pillars represent the gods who rule in that land. So Egypt will be wholly given over to the Lord and will announce to the world that the Lord is God. It says, then it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a Savior and a mighty one. He will deliver them. 
Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. Then they will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. What's that highway called? The Via Maris, the way of the sea. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyrian. The Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. Can you imagine today Egypt, Syria, and Israel all being of one heart, one mind, loving each other? We'll have to repopulate. Yeah, so it's not just the animals whose natures change. People get saved. Isaiah chapter 27, more about the kingdom. Isaiah chapter 27, starting in verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thrash. That's the tribulation period. From the channel of the river, that's the Nile. I'm sorry, that's the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. Now we're down toward the Nile. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. So that's Yom Kippur, the day of atonement or the battle of Armageddon. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Precious, precious times. Let's look also at, did we do Isaiah 19? We probably did. Yeah. So let's do Isaiah chapter 65. Oops, I got two red numbers out there. Let me see what they are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Susie makes the point for the amillennials that if the kingdom is here, then the animals shouldn't be a problem, so maybe they should go play with the lions. She didn't say that. I just added that at the end. <laughs> and she said, we hope that includes bugs, and I'm sure it will. Mosquitoes won't bite you anymore. How about that? Hallelujah is right. So in Isaiah chapter what? 65. Let me go be there too. Isaiah 65. Start in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered to come to mind. That's eternity future. Now we're back to the kingdom. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. See that word rejoice? We're talking about tabernacles, establishing the kingdom on earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing in her people of joy. So in verse 18, you see rejoice, rejoicing and joy, all in the one verse. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. God also takes joy in the Feast of Tabernacles. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. 
You can't weep and cry when the Lord is in the midst, bringing such peace and harmony. Verse 20 says, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days. So no more infant mortality. No more dying children. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, and his days are going to be real long. We're going to read in a minute. For the child shall die 100 years old, meaning if somebody dies at 100, they're still considered a child. How many of you look at a 100-year-old person today and go, boy, that's a child? That's a change. And the only one who's going to die at 100 years old says, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. If you die at 100 years old, it's because you've gotten off into sin. They shall build houses and inhabit them, meaning no more captivity, no more conquest. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Again, they'll learn war no more. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. How long do the olive trees in Israel live we don't know know. many of the trees in the garden of gethsemane over 2,000 years old they are the very trees messiah prayed under and cried under he says the life of a person is going to go back to being like that of a tree how long will they live a thousand years two thousand years and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands they shall not labor in vain. Remember the curse in the garden? The curse has been lifted. You no longer produce from the ground by the sweat of your brow. It's not hard in thickness and thistles and thorns. Nor bring forth children for trouble. How many of you would like to know that you'll never have to worry about your children anymore? That they're going to walk uprightly before the Lord. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. How many times do we read in the scripture now, how long, O Lord, how long? Lord says, I'll answer before they even call. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. What does Proverbs 28, 9 tell us about those who turn their ear from hearing the law? Even their prayer is an abomination. So God will hear them while they're still speaking because they have embraced the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God with their whole heart. And again it says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. That serpent's still in trouble, all the way from the garden. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's see, I've got a number one out there. is I create something he has done and will be coming into being. Let's see. Ah. In biblical Hebrew, there is something called the prophetic perfect. And that is God will write words of prophecy that are so certain to be fulfilled. He uses the perfect tense or past tense to write them. And it means there is no doubt, no question, what the new heavens, the new earth will come. He says, as sure as it is that the new heavens, new earth will come, 
So it is that the millennial kingdom will be fulfilled. It's not an if. It's not a maybe. It shall be done. How about Jeremiah 23? Uh Uh-oh. I've hit the end of my time. But let's look at Jeremiah 23 real quickly. Jeremiah 23. The brain cannot absorb more than the derriere can withstand. I recognize that. Jeremiah chapter 23. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper. That's the messianic kingdom on earth. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. No invaders. Now this is the name by which he will be called Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. And then turn to Jeremiah 33 and compare. Jeremiah 33. Verses 15 and 16. In those days and at that time. At that time is the tribulation period. I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. The tribulation period ends. He returns. It's time to rule and reign on earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called. Adonai Zedekinu, the Lord our righteousness. When does a woman take the man's name? At the wedding. So it indicates that dwelling in Jerusalem is the bride of Messiah. And that's what we read in Isaiah chapter 4, isn't it? Okay, one last thing, and that's Ecclesiastes. And then we really will stop. At this point, I will read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. No, I won't. I will just read the last part of Ecclesiastes. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon did. That tells us where to find it, doesn't it? Yeah, before I say it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. We saw that Messiah is going to teach the Torah, the law, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God in the kingdom. And Solomon looks forward to that day. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, he says, after spending an entire lifetime trying to find meaning in life, I finally found it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So Solomon says, at the end of days, we are going to stand before the Lord in judgment. At that time, we will wish we had done a better job of keeping his commandments, won't we? But salvation is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast.
What is the Jewish understanding of a feast? They tried to kill us, we survived.